Hi friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast episode 44. And I am on with Paul Layton. Did I get that right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So he is a professor and I'll let him tell you who he is in his own words and then we'll get started. So Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> thanks so much for doing the podcast series. Sounds really cool. Um, I teach criminology at Eastern Michigan University, and my interest really is in how all of the social inequalities, class, race, gender, homophobia, all of the rest of them, influence the criminal justice system and how the criminal justice system recreates all of those inequalities. So I do a lot on class, race, gender, domestic violence, um, <clears throat> excuse me, also try to have us think a little bit more rationally about crime prevention rather than prison and think about all of the effects that prison and punishment have that we don't intend but are still really disruptive. Oh my goodness, I love that. It's I just had a vision, Paul. I had a vision that when this podcast really blows up and I thank everyone who has supported the podcast up until this point, and I thank all of you who will continue to support the podcast. I would love to get everyone that has ever been on this podcast in a room together because I think there would be so much beautiful community there because so many of us are like-minded. And so, friends, I'll tell you that I went through, many of you know that I advocate and I'm an activist when it comes to sexual assault and domestic violence. We start by believing survivors when they tell us their lived experience. And so I had the pleasure and the honor of going through training with Safe House Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Paul was one of the, he led a module and I was blown away with his knowledge and his humility um, because really I should say humility first, um, because a lot of people are knowledgeable and they don't come with humility. And so it kind of can turn people off, even if they have good information to share. But he was so humble about what he was sharing with us. And he started to tell us about privilege. You know, we were able to take a look at what privilege and the various privilege, um, components of privilege, or I, I call them kind of podiums of privilege. And I wrote a piece on this on my website, but, uh, because when you, I, I love the visual of standing up to a podium, uh, and everyone stops talking when you're at the podium generally, you know, um, and then you're able to speak and share what you need to share. And so many of us, I, I don't want to say all, but many of us have some level of privilege in some arena. And so we talked about privilege and the impact it has when we are working with survivors. And it was really interesting way to take a look at that because I hadn't explored it in that manner before. And so that was really had a huge impact on me personally and professionally in terms of taking a look at this really big idea. So how did you, and then I also love the, what you're talking about, like, you know, we have these thoughts, right? Everyone has opinions, just like another part of the body, right? And so we have opinions and 
then we oftentimes find information that will confirm the opinion rather than find information that is accurate that will help us broaden our scope, correct? Yes, exactly. And right now that's an even bigger problem with lots of the social media that we're on because they filter it to kind of give you more of the stuff you agree with and less of the stuff you don't agree with and figure that will kind of help make you happy and engaged. So it's not just kind of our perception and kind of seeing something that agrees or that confirms what we already believe, but it's also kind of all around us on the computer, kind of invisibly reinforcing that also. Yeah, that's what they said during the 2016 election, that many of us were in these echo chambers and they showed almost like a split screen of red and blue. So I'm definitely using, you know, thinking of the two major political parties, which I think is a broken system um, and too. kind of landed us in the mess in which we are. I know some people wouldn't agree that we're in a mess, but I think we are <laughs> in a mess. Um, and so there was a red feed um, indicating a Republican feed or a more conservative feed or a more right-wing feed, and then there was a blue feed indicating a more democratic or liberal or left field, uh, left-wing um, feed. And so there was really no way of merging, right? There was no way of someone who is already more right seeing anything that someone who's already more left was seeing which is sad because it didn't it doesn't lend itself to engagement or conversation it just lends itself to us being polarized in our respective corners and only talking with the people that are in agreement with us which isn't always the best sometimes it feels good or we think it feels good but it's not always the best to have just one way of looking at something so, no, we really need to be challenged in order to grow. Yeah, I agree. I have, um, at the time that this podcast goes live, we would have talked to a woman named Ashton Marr, and you may come across her because she's also, uh, she's an Eastern Michigan University student. Uh, she's studying social work, and we talk about, um, we talked about substance use disorder last year. Um, she is in recovery and she's vocal about it. And we are talking this season, we're talking about um, restorative justice. So I'll definitely put you all in, in conversation because I think you'll have a lot to, to talk about um, with regards to creative ways of looking at rehabilitation and uh, avoiding, I guess, incarceration or how we kind of... Um, because I think the word I'm stumbling because, and you, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. It seems like once the criminal justice case is over, right? That part, it moves into sentencing. So once someone has been convicted of a crime, the next step is sentencing. Oftentimes at this point, perhaps a victim is, able to lend their voice and share about the impact via a uh, victim impact statement. And then the judge, and now we have mandatory minimums, right? So there, are, there's not the leeway that may have been there in the past, and sometimes there is still leeway in terms of what kind of sentence this person is going to get. 
Now, all once that's done, it seems like a lot of society would just as soon throw away the key and forget about that person without taking a look that that incarcerated person is a person and that a, they may not have done it, to be honest. Let's let's be real, you know, especially when we're talking about racism and um, just criminalizing certain things like alcoholism and addiction, right? Um, and then further on, a lot of these, there's a lot of uh, intersectionality, right, in the different identities and the different hats that we wear. So you were talking about creative solutions. What are <clears throat> some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And especially the addiction piece has so many different facets to it. It's kind of amazing to me as I was, um, I spent last summer working on a book called The Rich Get Richer and the Poor Get Prison, which is in uh, 11th edition. Um, my co-author started it back in 1979, and it's been in print since then. Wow. And it's kind of crazy to sit down, and every three years we have a new edition, and just to see the amount of evidence that reconfirms the original problem. And definitely the drug war and drug addiction was one of those. You know, we have 45 years of a drug war right now, but basic treatment is really hard to get unless you have really nice private insurance. Um, <clears throat> I was um, talking to a convict criminologist, um, someone named Chuck Terry, who's written a book on heroin addiction because his own background was being addicted to heroin. And he ended up spending 10, 15 years in prisons through um, Oregon and California. And he said at one point, he called to get some help. He said, he told them literally, I am committing felonies every day. I would like to stop before I get sent back to prison. Please help me. And he said, the question that they asked was, do you have insurance? Sure. And he said, no. And he said, well, it's going to be $500 a day. And his basic response was, if I had $500, then I wouldn't be calling you because I would be using. Right. Um, but you know, if we're ever serious about doing something about drug treatment, we know that we need to get treatment on demand. Not everybody's going to take it up and be successful, but if you don't get people where they say, help, you have missed a huge opportunity to do something positive. I think that the other solution that we too frequently forget about is looking at the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there's a lot of stuff circulating around now about how the big pharmaceutical companies with OxyContin and some of the other uh, really powerful painkillers they have have created massive addictions. And people find it's easier and cheaper now to fulfill their addiction through heroin <clears throat> than it is the, uh, the prescription drugs anymore. And now we have kind of a big, we have a big crisis and a really high rate of overdose deaths. Um, we actually have one of the highest rates of overdose deaths of any developed country, which again is just crazy. It is. So going back and again, taking a look at the pharmaceutical industry, not just holding them accountable for what they do, but this is obviously an ongoing thing. They're in the business partly 
of creating drugs that are a lot like illegal drugs that make people feel better. So this isn't a one-shot problem. This is going to be an ongoing problem. And to figure out a better system so that people who are in legitimate pain can get what they need, but that this isn't overprescribed. And I've heard so many stories, especially of like high school athletes who get an injury, who get a 30-day supply of some powerful narcotic. That's way more than that they really need for their injury, but the doctors just kind of prescribe it. Lots of times getting a refill has been easy. So they found themselves hooked on it, and that's just started the the downward trend. Um, We also need to do a lot better with the recovery piece in prison. We know that 70-80% of inmates in there have a substance abuse problem. That might not be directly what led them into it, but it's part of the reason that they're struggling and visible and picked up. And we only really give drug treatment to about 13% of them. So again, we kind of know how to do better. It's a matter of political will and saying, we care about this. This really matters. Um, In lots of cases, we don't really need exotic new solutions. We don't need to invent wheels. There's a lot of stuff around. We just need to pick it up and say, this is going to be a priority and do it. I agree. It's, um, you know, and it makes me think about this retreat that I'm going to have, this little convention of sorts with all of you, because while we, many of the people that come on this uh, podcast are more progressive in thought, not necessarily, they may or may not identify that way um, politically, but in terms of being willing and able and excited about having conversations with people and coming up with creative solutions, because you're right. It's, you know, when I can put myself in another's shoes, then I have a higher capacity for compassion and empathy. And then I am in a greater position to utilize the intelligence and the intellect that I have along with connection to humanity to Mm -hmm. do something about the problem, right? And, but on the other hand, if I'm unwilling to step outside of myself and I say something foolish, like anyone who listens to the podcast probably knows what I'm going to say next. Um, You need to just pull yourselves up from the bootstraps and I have no empathy and I lack common concern for humanity, then I'm going to continue to blame the people that are suffering. And here's the thing, the war on drugs, right? The war on welfare, the war on the poor or on poverty has really been a war on people. This has not been something that we've won. The war on terror That's also been an attack on mostly our Muslim community, you know, our Muslim neighbors uh, here in this country in particular, not even so much over there, um, wherever over there is at the time, right? Because we kind of have picked and choose, we have picked and chosen who is the enemy of the day or of the season. And it ends up being, I no longer have empathy for you. (laughs) 
whether you're a citizen or not, like because I see something that's identifiable and different about you, then you are now the problem. And uh, it saddens me greatly. Um, I wrote a piece on how the war on drugs has changed tunes because for me, as a woman of color, and I look at what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with the war on drugs and the mandatory minimums, right? We have criminalized substance use disorder. People are really suffering and dying as a result of not getting treatment. And many people for low amounts uh, and definitely nonviolent um, crimes that they've committed, but related to drug, um, having drugs, um, they are, some are still incarcerated. And now that opioids have taken over and that has dominated the conversation, and I look at the different populations when it comes to just color, right? Color of skin. So our, even our conversation has changed, right? And how we're attacking it, so to speak, or how we're addressing it has changed. And so I think about people of color who struggle no less than white people when it comes to alcoholism and addiction and the very different responses to the same illness. And it has not been the case with, I mean, I will say this, I'm a healthcare professional. And so I do know that when I lived in Las Vegas, I, the community in which we served um, from a medical standpoint was largely Spanish speaking. So I would say 60 to 80% Spanish speaking patients is what we had. Mm -hmm. And so that comes with um, unique uh, concerns um, just because of like language and uh, information and uh, culture, right? So every community has that. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's only relegated to Spanish-speaking communities. I would say it's every... If you're a human being and you're breathing, you belong to community, right? Uh, so it's just really interesting to take a look at that. You were going to say something. Um, I was going to say, we now also have some interesting experiments like with Portugal, which has decriminalized all drugs about 12, 13 years ago now. There have been some rigorous evaluations which show that it hasn't led to more crime or more drug addiction. They uh, have an interesting system where you go before a committee of um, social workers, psychologists, um, drug counselors, other folks, and they basically try to figure out whether you actually have a problem or whether you're just using drugs. And if you're using drugs, but you seem to do well in work, in school, as a family member, they might give you some literature <clears throat> and send you on your way, but nothing more. As you start to indicate that you actually have a problem, they'll try a few more things to actually get you into treatment. But we don't really use, they don't use prison there. Um, they try to keep some of the drug trafficking from getting serious. We don't want kind of huge companies distributing drugs. So prison is reserved for drug traffickers after they get to a certain size. And Portugal also kind of revised its welfare system to kind of expand the safety net in some other ways at the same time. But that has been a really great success. And uh, I was also going to comment, I do think it's, uh, 
I don't want to say it's a shame that we now have attention to drug issues just because it's hit white working class and middle class families. Um, I do think it needs to be noted that lots of minority communities had huge problems with crack and that was ignored. Yep. Meth got a little bit more of a response because it was white rural, yep. but now we're really seeing kind of a much fuller response and concern because this is kind of white working class and middle class now. And I really wish we could have had the same thought and attention 30, 40 years ago to the problem. Um, although, interestingly, not that much has really changed yet. We're doing better with EpiPens and overdose response. Yes. Again, we still haven't got that fundamental level of either regulating pharmaceutical companies much more intelligently or doing drug treatment so that people can get help when they need it. Yeah, that's good. It's And it's so true. And you're right. I And I want to be clear, friends, this is not... Um, I sigh sometimes because the frustration is real and it touches communities and this this is not and that's why we I talk to amazing people like Paul and other guests that have been on this uh, podcast is because we need to be talking about this stuff because policies that come from whether state houses or you know our uh, Congress they affect real people. And so we can't afford to sit back. That is part of the problem. <laughs> My own personal apathy is part of the problem. And so I take full responsibility, but it will not happen again. <laughs> you know. And yes, I am so grateful because I know a lot of people in recovery and they are some of the most amazing people I've had the pleasure and honor of living life alongside. So yes, I am grateful that the conversation is now on the table. And yes, I too am saddened that we did not have the wherewithal that we have now to take a look at this in a different way. Because but that goes back to the that goes back to the compassion you were talking about sure. when it was black people doing crack. It was that perception that they were all poor and ghetto, and That's they right. were doing it to themselves. And now it's a little bit different when it's white community and some of those have contact to with you know, kind of legislators and representatives and other people who have a little bit of status and power. Yep, that's true. It, that leads me to, um, well, I could probably talk to you for a long, long time. So I'm going to get you to agree on air that you will come back to this program at some point. Yeah, anytime. Okay, awesome. Um, I do that sometimes so that no one can back out at the last minute. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All the people I've spoken to have, are people of integrity. But um, I was listening to a podcast, so I'm a big podcast head, and I, you would love Embedded, so you should um, get on Embedded because um, or listen to Embedded. The first episode, they talk about Opana, which is a new prescription medication that is a pain medication, a narcotic pain medication. And they do two episodes. Um, so they do the initial episode, and it's the first one of the season, and then they end the series, and they do a follow-up, maybe seven or eight episodes in. And so... That one, initially the people um, in the small town of Austin, Indiana, 
they had an increase of 200 new HIV cases in this town of 4,000 to 4,300 people, right? Wow. And what it was is that people were using the Opana and crushing it and snorting it. Well, the manufacturer got wind of this, and so they put a like a clear filter on it. Well, that doesn't stop people who are addicted. So mm-hmm. what they did was they just started to uh, inject it, and they were not using clean needles. And so that was the uptick, um, significant uptick in new HIV cases um, of addicted people. And yeah. so that was um, that was pretty disheartening. And at this point. Um, I can share because you all would have heard it. So I had the honor and privilege of interviewing Kelly McEvers, who is the host of that program. And so um, that is pretty cool that she was on this podcast. But um, she talked about stories, you know, just kind of like what we're we're talking about. And the other thing you were talking about is, you know, being connected maybe with the legal system. And I mean, in terms of writing new bills and laws, um, not in terms of the criminal justice system. And one of the other podcasts that I listened to is Undisclosed. And that one, um, they, this season, well, the entire season, so it's been three seasons, but this the first season was um, looking into, I don't know if you're familiar of Anand Saeed. Are you aware of that young man who's been incarcerated since he was 17? Oh, yes. I have heard about that. Okay. So that was season one. Season two, I'm not sure because I didn't listen to it. But season three, Paul, you would be really interested because they do, they've been doing these arcs. And so the first arc was on Jamar Huggins, um, a wrongful conviction this arc that I'm listening to right now is on the killing of Freddie Gray. Hmm. And they talk about what you're saying and what the title of your book is that the poor get prison. And so one of the things that they talk about is whether or not someone is actually eligible once they've been exonerated. So a lot of the resources that have been available to parolees, right, are not a available to uh, exonerees. And so that leaves people holding their bag, their clear bag of belongings with hopelessness. Because what do you do to describe your resume with so many holes in it? What do you do to describe your financial history, you know, when you're trying to get... (coughs) your first apartment or trying to get that first job, right? Or getting medical care um, and insurance because let's face it, you did not check into um, the W, right? You were likely in a maximum facility or security facility, or even if you weren't, healthcare is not the top priority um, of these prisons that are a lot of them are privatized, which I was shocked to hear. So people are literally making money off of the backs of mostly brown and black people. Um, exactly. You know, so what thoughts do you have about that? And then I do want to touch on um, privilege and kind of how you got 
interested in this topic and how you were able to personally navigate it because a lot of people give pushback when you say mm-hmm. that if I was to say to someone, you have white privilege or your privilege is showing, I have gotten pushback or white fragility. So I guess we can talk a little bit more about prison system and then move into privilege. Yeah, I did want to say with the exonerations, um, everything you said was spot on. <clears throat> and you also have the issue that prison normally makes people worse off psychologically. Totally. And it, um, along a lot of different dimensions. So just kind of booting somebody out and saying, you're now free, and maybe here's a little bit of money, doesn't really start to heal them. Um, you know, They do have problems <clears throat> getting jobs because of the resume, but once you're in prison, everything is done for you. So there's a real loss of not just your freedom, but your ability to organize your life. We see this most with people who have been on death row for 15 or 20 years and exonerated. And something that we would take for granted, like ordering, um, I don't happen to go to McDonald's personally, but it's the example that comes up frequently, is just that a lot of folks who are out of prison for 10 years, or out after 10 years in prison, feel like that's complicated. It's bright and shiny, and they're used to grays and sensory deprivation. There seems like a lot of choices after you've been somewhere where they just kind of sling stuff on your tray and you might have some very limited options. Um, Going to a grocery store overwhelms people. You can imagine kind of walking into a decent-sized grocery store and all of the different choices when, again, the commissary is going to stock, you know, 30, 40, 50 different things. You just don't have that much choice. You've been really put in an environment where there's a lot of encouragement to use violence. If somebody cuts in front of you in line, you don't want to show weakness or like they get over on you. So the encouragement is to lash back quickly and harshly. So there's a lot of damage there to undo. And we've had a couple of bad examples of people who have been exonerated after long periods of time, gotten a large amount of cash. I shouldn't say large for what they've been through, but for them and their circumstances, it's a large amount of money. And, you know, if you had been in prison for 15 years, you would go out and party with it. And that's exactly what they did, right? You go out and drink, you party, you sleep around, and then you pretty quickly find yourself out of money and living somewhere homeless again. So with that whole system, we need to do much better with coming up with the plan and supporting people while they readjust and get therapy and get skills and other things to live on the outside. But the the payment of the check isn't a good system. And our whole criminal justice system, we're finding out, has a lot more wrongful convictions in it Mm -hmm. than we thought. We know mostly about death penalty cases because that's where the research goes. But nobody knows how many wrongful convictions there are in drug cases. We know especially lots of people who can't afford um, bail or an attorney just plead guilty. You start the clock, you get less of a penalty, mm-hmm. and you're out and done. Um, speaking of privatization, I was reading that in one jurisdiction, if you're out on bail, they want $300 a month for electronic monitoring. And if you can't pay it, then you go back to jail. 
That's right. So people just plead guilty so they can kind of get that whole point over with. They can't afford $300 a month on top of everything else for electronic monitoring. They don't want to sit in jail. So it doesn't really matter what you've done or haven't done. It just makes sense the way plea bargains work to take the plea. You get your time served. You get a reduction in whatever it would be. And normally the prosecutor says, you know, if you make me go to trial, it's going to be a year, 14 months from now, and I'm going to throw the book at you. All of these charges, we're going to prove everything. So there's a lot of coercion just to take a plea bargain. You know, the electronic monitoring is another inducement there to plead guilty, even if you hadn't done it. But there's a lot otherwise where people just don't want to sit in jail for long periods of time. They can get credit for, you know, the time that they've been in there. So it makes sense to plea whether or not they did it. Yeah, I I remember listening to, you'll have to check them out. It's the Liturgist podcast. And um, both the hosts, one is Michael, one is Mike. And uh, it, it so this particular podcast was called Black and White. And they had two black men as gas and then the two white male hosts and the leading story was about a woman who has I think three maybe four children and she is a single mother and she got picked up for something that she did not do and was in jail and her kids were not you know they she was really concerned about them and so she finally decided to plead guilty to this thing that she hadn't done well because of it so it was related to drugs actually and like drug um, trafficking, but it was like kind of a wrongful, um, it was definitely a wrongful conviction in so far as she was the wrong person. She was not involved in this at all. And because she had been on public assistance due to her poverty level, she was no longer eligible for that. And people don't understand that when you are a felon, a convicted felon, a lot of resources that you may have been eligible for prior to that point, you're no longer eligible for. Yeah. And so then it ended up, I mean, it was just one of those things of like when bad things happen to good people and it just spiraled out of control. And I was just so sad and my heart was so broken hearing just that opening story and even as I'm listening to you, I'm trying to keep it together because it breaks my heart. My experience is not like so many other people of color's experience. It's not better. It's not worse. I had struggles too, but I'm from Ann Arbor. And so I had never in my life had to think about some of the things that I've been thinking about now. And one thing that we talked about on the pre-call is that once you are more awake and in the process of being more awakened... Um, some people use the word woke. Some people use, you know, it's hard to go back to being asleep, right? It just doesn't really work. And it just breaks my heart that people struggle in the way that they do. And society, which in this country, it says on our money, in God we trust. I don't necessarily believe that that's accurate. I don't think that's what, and this is considered a Christian nation, and I disagree um, because there is a genuine lack of interest with anyone that doesn't look like me or doesn't live like me, doesn't believe the things that I believe. And 
we've lost our way in terms of community and being neighbors to one another, I feel. I think that we have an uphill battle. I'm not hopeless. I believe there's hope rising and there are pockets of goodness, but overwhelmingly we have a lot of work to do. And so it leads me to my question. I have a couple more questions for you. So the first one is the work. What has been your process? Like, how did you arrive to be interested in the things that we've been talking about? Because a lot of white men, um, I hate to be the bearer of the truth, but not really, um, aren't as interested in this. I've met a few really great ones that are, but I overwhelmingly that has not been the case. And I've been blocked by two that have been really pissed off at me because I've been like, no, I'm not going to sit back and tolerate this nonsense that you're spewing. So how did you become, I'm a little sweet and spicy, Paul, if you haven't (laughs) gotten that sense. So yeah, how did you become interested in all of this? And what was that like for you? You know, it's been a slow process and it's still ongoing. I think it, you know, not to give you too long a history, but um, when I was back in the high school, our school newspaper got censored. And I think that was the first confrontation with power, where it was just kind of, it was arbitrary, it was wrong. Um, Somebody on staff had written a story about how cheap and available drugs were in the high school, which of course the principal just had a fit about and he shut down the whole school newspaper. Um, That really got me interested in law and power and privilege in different ways. Um, Grad school definitely opened my eyes through a lot of women's studies classes, um, you know, kind of sociology classes that dealt a lot with gender. Um, People who were kind of pushing globalism and diversity. Um, And I think, you know, once I got to EMU, which is now 20 years ago, um, I had the chance to teach the domestic violence class. And a lot of students come to the class, both with professional interest, but because of something that's happened to them. And just hearing stories, especially across the very diverse EMU student body, you know, lots of different races, nationalities, people who are immigrants, people who are citizens, people who are upper class and thought that they weren't going to have to deal with anything like that. Um, But I think it's helped to be be open in other ways. Um, I now do a uh, book called Class, Race, Gender, and Crime. And that is, I'm working on a fifth edition of that now. So that's been out since, you know, 1990s sometime. Um, But every three years, you know, going back to that in between, you kind of keep your eyes peeled for, okay, what's going on here? So it's kind of searching out news and at times kind of struggling to make sense of things. I know that I still struggle. Um, the first time I read um, Victor Rios's book, which is really excellent, called Punished, um, Policing in the Lives of Black and Brown, um, I forgot if he says it's men or just um, people, yeah. We, yeah, whether he says people. Um, but Victor is another one who grew up in a gang, got a PhD at UC Irvine, and then <clears throat> wrote this book, did this dissertation research while he was there going back and hanging out with his gang. 
And one of the things that struck me from the book was he talked about kids in his neighborhood getting tickets for riding a bicycle without a helmet. And I have to say, I was, I wasn't outrageously skeptical because, you know, I, it kind of knew Victor, I knew the book, but I was kind of like, really stuff like that happens. That seems so far from, you know, kind of the, the childhood I grew up in. And, you know, I'm kind of trying to figure out what to do with this. And then I see a link for something in one of the Tampa papers. They did an analysis of 10,000 citations for bicycle-related things and found out that 80%, 90% of them were of blacks. Yep. Lots of times, somebody driving on the handlebars of somebody else's bike, two people on a bicycle, you can get a citation for that. And again, it kind of reinforced it. But again, it was like, well, police definitely wouldn't have done that in my neighborhood. There's no way. Um, but, you know, it's kind of that looking at something and, you know, I, I couldn't kind of say, okay, this is, um, you know, I, I'm totally convinced that this is what's going on in the neighborhoods. I think I still had a bit of battle with my privilege over, well, that's definitely not my experience. And it seems amazing to me that cops would do this, even after all that I've read. But it took a few other pieces to kind of see the the train and I think luckily now I'm a little bit more open to taking things that I initially didn't consider or wasn't quite sure what to make of them and being open to them. So when the next piece of information came in, I could kind of say, well, that's similar to what was going on before. And building that through seeing the Ferguson report where 80% of the tickets for right-of-way violations were for blacks. And I didn't even know what that was. But a right-of-way violation is where there's a sidewalk and you walk on the road. And again, you know, in lots of neighborhoods, especially middle-class neighborhoods, that isn't a crime. You just kind of, you know, you hang out in the street, you bike in the street, you do whatever. Nobody ever thinks twice about it. But in lots of heavily policed minority neighborhoods, this is something that happens. Um, Matt Taibbi's book, The Divide, is also really good. But he talked about a lot of blacks getting picked up for obstructing pedestrian traffic because they got home from work at two o'clock in the morning and were smoking a cigarette outside their building. And the cop comes along and that's the only thing he can think of to harass them. So he says that they're blocking traffic, even though there's nobody else walking on the sidewalk. Um, So I guess that's kind of a long way of saying, you know, I think part of what I've learned is to be open to certain things even if intuitively they didn't grab me and say, that's right, that's what's going on. But then being able to kind of put that together with other things and see the larger pattern of it, even though, again, it definitely implicates my privilege, you know, back when I was growing up as well as my current one. Totally. I love that. Um, One of the gals on, the ladies on uh, Undisclosed, so so undisclosed, like I said, they're talking about the killing of Freddie Gray, and they do addendums. So they'll release one episode on a Monday, I believe, and then Thursday they will release the addendum. And so oftentimes they have various guests on the addendum, some of the same ones. So Dee Watkins is one, and Amelia, and I don't remember her last name, she's another and then this professor of sociology, I believe, at Georgetown University, uh, Marsha Chatlin, 
she's another. And so they were taught and they had several others. And one of the other gentlemen, who's, I believe, a journalist, he said that a seven year old was arrested in Baltimore and Baltimore PD is notorious for racism and significant um, mismanagement and lack of empathy and compassion and over policing. And so the seven year old was arrested and I was so pissed and incredulous because I too did not have that experience growing up in somewhat of a utopia of what I thought was Ann Arbor. And it doesn't mean that Ann Arbor didn't have its problems. It definitely did. And there was a recent article in the Michigan daily about over policing in Ann Arbor. Um, we definitely did feel the presence of the, the police, especially as youth um, hanging out on the streets of South University here on campus, right? Um, we we saw the police, we interacted with them. Um, I guess it's not a surprise that I'm into what I'm into because um, actually when I was 16, um, a girl, or 15, excuse me, a girl, one of my classmates, but not at Pioneer High School, I went to Pioneer, she went to Huron, I believe, she was killed. And so the police took a really long time to get to her because they thought they were being uh, ushered into a riot. So they suited up in riot gear. And while she was, she, she may have been able to be assisted um, medically if they had hurried up, um, Hmm. she died. And so that hit me because I was out of town with my family, but if I was in town, I likely would have been at that party. And that was kind of like a shock to many of us. Um, And it was definitely a first experience for me. And so I organized a town hall back before they were in vogue um, with the mayor of Ann Arbor, the police chief uh, of Ann Arbor Police Department, along with a fire chief here in Ann Arbor. And I was 16 at the time and it was pretty successful. And too bad I didn't continue that conversation and keep it going. But um, at the time, we needed answers. Um, that was going to be a part of our healing process. And I'm glad that they obliged. I don't know how much it was. It helped, but um, it was definitely something that needed to happen at the time. And so, you know, hearing these cases of and experiences of people of color that are even different than my own lived experience as a woman of color. It's an eye opener and socioeconomic status and class is definitely a privilege that some of us have and others don't. Um, And so I've had pushback from white men who come from a lower socioeconomic status than myself and have indicated that they don't have privilege, even though they're white and even though they're men. Um, And I'm like, well, we can definitely look at it. You know, let's take a look at this a little bit deeper because um, what I found that's interesting is many people who identify as Christian believe in this notion of original sin, that once you slide down the birth canal, you just have it. And Mm -hmm. it's your responsibility to find faith, which is, you know, to Christians through Jesus Christ. And once you accept Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, then you are saved because he is the Savior. And from that point, that sin that you were born into that was not your fault, you're wiped clean. Now, the same concept can be applied to privilege, white privilege in particular. 
And these same people that believe in original sin have a really hard time thinking of white privilege, almost like it's an indictment on them when it's not. It's privilege is not the fact that you enjoy privilege is not your fault. What you do with it, now that's on you, you know, is what I say to people. We're all born the way we're born, and it's not your fault that you're born one color or born one um, gender or on the gender spectrum or born, you know, in terms of spectrum of sexuality. We're not talking about that, but what you do with whatever it is, however you arrived on this beautiful planet, is is up to you. You know, we do have a lot of opportunity for making the planet a better place than when we arrived. So last question for you, Paul, how do you self care? Because it, a lot of what you do is really heavy. Uh, hmm. It's good work. So thank you for putting your hand and your hat in the ring and doing this work, which is not always easy. So how do you self care? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I would say the very basic thing for me has been to <clears throat> listen to music and go for long walks. Um, trying to spend some time giving back where I can. Um, it's interesting that, you know, you bring that up because more recently what has happened is uh, I have taken to caring for two aging parents, both with mm. dementia. Yeah. It's been yeah. a couple of years now, which has been heavy. And for a long time, I did not do very much self-care because I was uh, trying to deal with moving them and sorting through their stuff and <clears throat> taking power of attorney and <clears throat> figuring out their finances and um learning enough about their health to do medical advocacy and being there when the paranoia, confusion, fear, and other stuff took hold in the dementia. Um, it's not happy dementia. It is uh, definitely dark and problematic. Um, so honestly, I have only recently started to think seriously about kind of the self-care that I need to be doing through the next leg of this. Um, so yeah, your, uh, your question is great. Being a guy, we kind of feel like we can just power through all of this and we don't need any help and having a beer once in a while is fine. Um, but that really doesn't cut it. You know, I do think through all of this, I, it's not self-care, but I have developed an appreciation of my own privilege, reading about what other people have to deal with, um, you know, both kind of race and gender, um, reading and hearing and talking to people about seriously precarious financial existence and how that one thing can just really cause everything to fall down and um, have people really lose control makes me really appreciate kind of that tenure track professorship in some different ways. Um, so I think a lot of the work, again, it's not quite self-care, but what I take from a lot of my work is how lucky I am in huge parts of my life. And even when I have the setbacks and the problems and the crap that goes on in life, 
realizing that that doesn't undercut my privilege or negate it. Um, everybody has crap that they need to deal with, but realizing that the privilege is a little bit more systematic, that if it weren't for the privilege, there could be a lot else to deal with, and that I have been able to give my kids a much better head start in life than I could have, you know, if I had been born elsewhere. Um, so I think all of that is kind of helpful in keeping me going, not shutting down and just kind of trying to pretend that I didn't have privilege, but realizing that it's there and feeling the obligation to go back and double down on the work so that other people also get it, so that we can share much more as a community the risks and the benefits of society. Um, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, but I need to do a lot better at the moment with the self-care. Yeah, you know, and and sometimes people get caught up and they think that self-care has to be pretty grandiose. Like they need to travel to Maui or they need to, <laughs> right? Like it can be as simple as taking a walk with your family after a meal. Um, it can be listening to music like you mentioned Um taking a day where you like maybe once every couple of months you have someone that you care uh, that you trust excuse me care for your family your parents while you go do something else um, you know having a date night with your partner um, playing with your kids like all of these things add up and so sometimes we get caught up in when I right fill in the blank then I will fill in the blank. And instead of appreciating today, right now, the present moment where the power is and doing it today, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, trying all, to, it's all good stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, trying to take care of yourself health-wise and be around friends. That's right. Well, and that makes us better for everyone around us, right? Like my voicemail says nurture yourself because then those around you benefit. And it's so true. Like when I do the work, whatever that means to me, um, there's a podcast where I talk about that with a dear friend of mine and we talk about the work and what, what that means, you know, and exploring what that means for ourselves um, individually. Then I am a better, stronger human for my community. Just like, as I talk about with Ashton with the restorative justice, when we, so addicted people or alcoholic, people who are alcoholic or are suffering with alcoholism, uh, they, they can't be helped when they're not breathing, right? So putting aside the judgment so that people can get treatment really benefits the community when people are recovered and in long-term recovery, right? It benefits the community. When people are no, like have been rehabilitated, legitimately rehabilitated and are no longer in the prison system, it benefits the community, you know, whether it's through family ties, whether it's through a renewed sense of self, self-esteem, you know, being able to go to work and feel good about that and then paying your bills on time and feeling good about that and maybe meeting someone that you can spend time with and learn from feeling good about that. All of this is like an investment back into 
self and community. So I agree with you that it can't be relegated to a later time. We can just do it right now. So thank you, Paul, so much for being agreeing to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. So we're going to read a couple of stories. Um, I found this guy looks to be in the subway um, in New York City, and he is wearing either a security. No, it looks the badge looks to be a NYPD badge. So he appears to be a police officer. And what he says is 1,027 days, one hour and 44 minutes until retirement. So I think he might be <laughs> looking forward to his retirement. What do you think? Yeah, that uh, comes up a lot with prison guards, too. They talk about serving their sentence until they get out. See? Yeah. And then, I mean, and we could probably talk a lot about that, but we won't this time around. Um then there appears to be a guy, and it says, I was down to the final two in an audition for the lead in a major TV show pilot. The network flew me out to Los Angeles. They put me up in a nice hotel, and they introduced me to all the executives. Everything felt perfect during the screen test. I thought I nailed it. Then right before I got on the plane back to New York, I got a call from my manager. He said the network thought I was too nice for the role. So that's that. And then... Finally, we'll end with this story. I had a child when I was 16. Appears to be a woman. Um, I got kicked out of high school because of all the absences. My family and community pretty much wrote me off. But right away, I got a job at a sporting goods store. Soon, I was able to get a job as a receptionist at a tax company, and they gave me enough responsibilities that I learned how to do taxes. Eventually, I learned enough to become an associate. Then I got offered a job at a smaller company, and even though it was a pay cut, they offered me responsibility over all the books, accounts payable, accounts receivable, everything. It was less money, but I wanted that experience, so I took the risk. And I'm so glad I did, because six months later, the controller of that company left, and I was given that position. They told me they couldn't officially call me the controller because I didn't have a college degree. So I finished my degree five months ago, just to make it official. So after having a child at 16, I made it all the way to controller of a company without even having a college degree. Can you believe that? Honestly, I've been waiting to tell that story so long that I told it to a customer service representative on the phone last week. She was nice, <laughs> she was nice about it and pretended to care. So community, hearing people's stories, it's what we do. It's what we were created to do, I believe, to be connected. So, all right. Thanks, friends, for listening. Um, definitely. Thank you so much for the support. Write a review, subscribe to this podcast, share it with friends, tell other people about it. And we will close in the usual manner. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. Thanks so much, friends. Have a wonderful, gratitude-filled day. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast Episode 44. Namaste.